Hey there, Freedom Fighters, coming to you directly from a couch in a random Airbnb in Austin, Texas. It's uh, Andrew Warner. You know me, your old buddy, your pal for over a decade, the guy who's been interviewing entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. And joining me is Jason Hirschman, someone who basically left school early because he was so eager to get into entrepreneurship. And he created a company called Uncountable, which is a platform that's built for R&D management, which frankly makes no sense to me when I just see that. But I understand, and you will too, why it's uh, left so broad. I invited him here to talk about why he left school, how big this business has gotten, how he got here by figuring out that there is a group of people whose business and lives still have not been touched enough by tech, by software. And he said, why, why are they still using spreadsheets? We can modernize them. And so he did. And I invited him here to talk about how he did it. And we can, thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, Jason uses them. It's a company that I'm going to be using to do my payroll. It's called Gusto. Later on, I'll tell you why you should go and try them for free at gusto.com slash Mixergy. And the second I use also, it's for hosting websites. It's called HostGator. But I'll talk about both those later. First, Jason, good to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate the time. You're all bootstrapped, right? Yeah, we are. Uh, we started back in 2016. And since then, I have been growing off of the revenue from our customers and sort of organic growth that, that we're seeing from our user base. And really excited about the, the potentials um, opportunities ahead of us. What is the revenue? We have around 5 million in annual revenue right now. Wow. Profitable? Yeah. Um, pretty much since day one. Wow. Uh, but the margin has changed certainly and we keep expanding the team. Um, we look to expand the team, you know, 50 to hundred percent year over year. And they've run a lot of great people that continue to push our product forward. I love the way you explained what you do before we got started. And I hope I didn't now exhaust it. And that you'll sound just as fresh as you did with me. But what is it that you do? And then we'll go into a specific example. Yeah, I mean, part of my job is trying to explain this world of R&D to engineers. Um, so I can do my best here. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, what happens today in a research lab is you have scientists collecting data from experiments they're running. And then generally putting that data in Excel spreadsheets. And typically you'll have the inputs for the experiment, what they're changing, in a separate sheet from the measurements. So if you want to put them together, you do a bunch of manual data analysis to go and try to find trends and results. And the process here is really inefficient. And we saw this and have developed a tool that makes it really easy for all the data to go in one place and also for you to collaborate with other scientists. We think of our tool as solving this problem of science at scale. If you have a team of 200 researchers at an organization, you need to be doing things differently than if you have a single person at a lab bench at a computer. You want to make sure that all the scientists coming into your organization can get access to the results that you've been running over the last few years and want to make sure that teams globally can all learn from each other's data. And so that's the problem that we're solving, along with a lot of other lab management tasks like managing inventory, um, creating lab requests um, and managing you know, different tasks that happen in the lab and making sure that all the data is centralized for the lab environment. Lab requests meaning like the way that most business people might ask for an office space or a conference room and they need to use software probably by Google or someone, your clients are using yours. Well, the, the lab request here would be you have an analytical team that's in charge of running these really expensive experiments. Okay. And when a scientist wants their sample to be tested, they'll actually issue a request to the analytical team saying, I have the sample. I wanted to undergo the following three types of tests. Um, and I, it's, you know, it's a high priority request for a customer. Let's go get, get this done. Okay. And this analytical team is receiving a bunch of these different requests and needs to send data back to the scientists. 
And before in Conval, a lot of these companies were actually sending PDFs with results from those experiments. So if a scientist wants to go and analyze that, they're parsing that PDF or copy and pasting tables. That literally happened? Manipulating it around. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually more common than you think. And um, it certainly makes for a pretty inefficient process where no one's truly happy because the analytical team doesn't like that they're receiving data from some sort of custom form environment. And the scientist doesn't like that they're having to do this translation work in between. Um, so just okay. the communication overhead in a big lab is something that just software hasn't gotten to yet. How the hell did you see that this was a problem? Yeah, so when we were starting Uncountable, we were looking for ways of taking data management techniques from Silicon Valley and moving them outside of just tech and finance to other industries. And what we quickly realized was that there are a lot of places where data management is necessary and helpful, but not a lot of places where you can sort of change a business quickly by influencing decisions. Okay. If you go to a manufacturing firm and tell them to change the way they do manufacturing, they're going to tell you it's super expensive and they can't really run a trial. Uh, but it turns out that R&D is an area that iterates really quickly. If you tell an R&D scientist um, to maybe try a different way of running an experiment, they can go do that because it's their job to experiment with things. And so that fast iteration time allows them to react to recommendations based on their data more quickly. And it allows us to have higher leverage in proposing innovative solutions and different ways of organizing this information. But how did you figure this out? You weren't in that space. What were you studying in school at the time? Yeah, so I come from a math and computer science background. Okay. Um, I've always loved software engineering and have worked with startups before. Um, but I also love solving problems with math. So I study a lot of statistics and understand how data can have a really big impact on the way people make decisions. Okay. And did not have an R&D background. Uh, but when we started in Combo, we started talking with a lot of different companies. And it was just having a lot of conversations. We were working out of um, our apartment down in Sunnyvale and, and trying to figure out kind of what it meant to start a company that really tried to impact an industry we weren't familiar with. And our biggest weakness at that point was lack of domain expertise. Uh, but I like to think that we essentially spent a year gaining that. We talked with so many people that we started to really understand this problem well. And once we had uncovered that we could have this leverage in the R&D environment, and we went and validated that with a lot of different organizations, we were pretty confident that this is the problem that we were going to go hire a team to solve and, okay. and build a software. So my, my hunch is that you said, we're at Stanford, right? That's where you were at the time? I was. Um, okay. My, my co-founder was actually at uh, another startup and then he brought in a third co-founder um, who had uh, studied with him at MIT. Okay. But you're bringing in all this background and saying, we're clearly a smart group of people. We want to see if there's anything we can help you with. And that's what opened the door at multiple industries. And then eventually R&D is where you zeroed in. Am I understanding right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the reality was there was a lot of hype. There still is about artificial intelligence the cloud, data, all the buzzwords that you hear. And that we use the hype to get in the door, frankly. Um, and what we found was that that was a good and bad strategy. It was good because you got in the door. It was bad because the hype creates misaligned expectations. Give me an and example. Who, where's, where's an industry or a company that you got in the door because of this and then you, you realize this is just ridiculous because we're promising or they're believing that we're going to do more than we ever could well, a lot of it is, is less about belief and more about misunderstanding of what's possible or what can change overnight. Um, so one of the first companies we worked with was Cooper Standard. And we actually won a Pace Innovation Award or got a nomination for Pace Innovation Award with them uh, for kind of some of the, the data work that we were doing. 
And we were able to show that by leveraging scientific data and structuring and organizing it, we could actually speed up their R&D um, development exercises. Now, the, the problem was is that if you simply take it one project at a time, you can't get better. Um, and so the, the analogy here in sort of the machine learning world is if you stick with the same training set or the same size of training set, your, your model doesn't really improve without a very big technological advance. And so what we said was, well, if we want to help Cooper Standard more and we want to make a bigger impact in other companies, started working with companies like BioServe that do a lot of consumer products, um, really innovative companies like Carbon 3D that do 3D printing inks. Um, we want to make sure that we can build larger and larger data sets for them. And so we transitioned from this model of saying, we're going to help you project by project to we want to help your whole organization manage data better. And instead of kind of leaning into sort of hype around the cloud and AI, we said, look, there's problems on the ground today with how you're communicating. Let us help you make your scientists better at what they do and give them the tools they need uh, to be able to lean into those technologies. And so our platform today um, exposes scientists to a lot of advanced analytics capabilities um, that wouldn't be possible without the data all in one place, or at least would be a ton of work to try to leverage. Just so I understand how you ended up with this, with R&D, can you give me an example of another place, another type of customer that you were aiming at before this and you realize, okay, our, our intelligence, our abilities are not going to apply here? Yeah. Um, so our CEO, Noel, um, I met him working at uh, Second Spectrum, which is a sports analytics company. Um, and there, um, we basically realized that the, the secret sauce the company was being able to manipulate and understand how to analyze data on a basketball court, which was really this sort of motion data. And the name Uncountable comes from this idea of being able to analyze continuous data, that there's something sort of different about the continuity that comes from a motion series that you don't get from a spreadsheet of information. And so we took that um, and brought in Will, our third co-founder, to go in and try to investigate how that type of data could be relevant to the manufacturing world and to other industries. And basically found that the, the continuous aspect was certainly a, a powerful place to, to try to build a business, but we didn't have the hardware expertise necessary to build like Internet of Things company. Um, and so the R&D space was a much more natural fit to actually apply similar optimization techniques and build the kind of core software product um, that we would be a better fit for, for trying to solve. And so far, what is, we've seen is that this problem is a lot bigger than we thought it was. It applies to a lot more industries. It applies to a lot of different types of R&D environments. And we're really excited about seeing how fast this can really expand and how many use cases we can cover. You worked for Palantir before, right? I did an internship there while I was at Stanford, yeah. What did you learn by being there? Um, well, enterprise data management uh, is, is certainly what I learned. And I think that when I look at some of the problems that we're facing today and some of the problems that Palantir faced in making a transition from a highly customized government product um, to sort of more of their industry offering, um, there's a lot of overlap in, in some of those challenges. And what I think um, one of the challenges that Palantir faced was trying to build a super generic product that could fit and mold itself to a lot of different industry problems. And what was that generic product that they, they were trying to create? Uh, they're basically trying to create, um, what Palantir does is they um, analyze data as like a series of graph patterns 
they look at connections between data that would be typically stored in a SQL database, which is somewhat inaccessible to someone who doesn't have a lot of database understanding and knowledge. And they try to play that solution generically to a lot of different industries. And the thing we do differently with Uncountable is really be very specific to this R&D use case is, you know, explicitly we're building a product for scientists. Um, so if you have a PhD in chemistry working in industry, we want to solve your problems. And we're not trying to expand this to every sort of business problem um, within these types of companies. Uh, we want to be very focused on these kind of highly technical areas where this R&D data is super critical. And, and the reason why this is high value is because the innovation of these companies is highly dependent on the success of their R&D environment. This is how they continue to get ahead and make sure that they can effectively develop the future. Okay, you were telling me about your first customer, and I think there's a good example there of what you do. Tell me how you how you landed them as a customer, and then let's talk about an example of what you do with them. Yeah, so uh, we actually reached out to, to one of their executives um, uh, who's very forward-thinking um, and very friendly to startups like us just getting off the ground. Um, and I think my advice for other entrepreneurs out there is um, it's not necessarily about the companies you reach out to. It's about the people there and, and how willing they are to, to take a chance on you. Um, and we've seen that a couple of times in the, the companies that we've acquired. And what, what he told us is essentially that there's a lot of R&D experiments being run. Um, it's not clear why scientists are choosing certain ones. There's not communication happening between their lab that's located in Indiana and the lab that's located in Normandy in France. And everything is sort of happening independently. And so you Sorry, would find- Sorry, and so you're saying people in labs, scientists in labs would just say, I have an idea for something I should be studying. Let's do that. It's a little bit more focused in industry development. So typically, um, they, they're a tier one automotive supplier, Cooper Standard, um, mm -hmm. and they make things like rubber hoses for engines. And so what will happen is an, a car manufacturer will go to them and say, developing a new car, I'd like this- hose to have this certain property, this certain density, the certain strength, go and develop a product for me. And they'll send out these bids to a bunch of different companies for this. And it's the goal of the R&D team to go and match all those specifications. But typically the same car manufactured in America will have slightly different requirements from the cars manufactured in Europe, even from the same automotive company. Um, and that's because of environmental standards or other regulations. And so you'd have the European team working on the European standards and the US team working on the American standards, but fundamentally developing the same product for the same make of car. And, and ultimately you want them communicating so that they can transfer expertise about which raw materials are working, which properties are hard to achieve, um, and, and really make sure that they're developing in concert. And we see this problem a lot across a lot of different um, customers we work with where, especially in a globalized world, um, you want communication that's happening at sort of the, the numeric and scientific level. You know, we, literally, if you have someone speaking French and someone speaking English, they should still be able to look at each other's data because ultimately these are numbers and metric measurements. Um, but that simply wasn't happening because all emails happening or, or all communication happening over email and PDFs where there was more of a translation barrier. Okay. And so they were sometimes doing the same experiment maybe getting results that would help the other team, but not passing it in, in a way that would benefit the other team. You you go in and you say, I think we can solve this. And your first solution for it was? Yeah, so it, a lot of it is latency, right? Is 
maybe they, they communicate, but it takes a, a week for the results to go back and forth. And in our platform, you're entering data, it's all in the cloud. You can just log in and see instantly someone else's results. Um, and our solution here is, is that, is to build a software platform where when I enter a result in, everyone else at my company uh, can see that result if they're working on a similar project. And so it's really creating sort of a whole file system for R&D in the cloud uh, where you can store data in a very structured manner. And the other thing that's different about our system from a lot of legacy software here is that we focus on sort of those data structure as opposed to sort of a notebook or a historical log of what's happening in the lab. So the, the typical picture of a scientist in a lab is they're jotting down notes in a notebook next to them and recording chronologically what's happening. And the problem with that is that if I want to try to find an insight that they had, I have to basically read through their history. There's no structured search of that notebook. Wow. Um, and we try to solve that problem as well by focusing on each individual experiment as essentially an atom of work instead of a page in a lab notebook. That's a good analogy. Okay. All right. Let me talk about my first sponsor and then we'll continue on with the story. First sponsor is Gusto. You use Gusto, right? Yeah, we people? use Gusto to manage payroll um, and kind of as our HR platform. When you say HR platform, how do you mean? What else does it do? Uh, we provide uh, 4098s for our employees through it. Uh, we also um, use their managed healthcare benefits and try to make it as easy as possible for employees to understand what's happening um, and make it easy on us to, to try to manage it as little as possible. Was this a decision you made personally, or is the company was the company big enough when you decided that someone else made that decision to use Gusto? Um, I don't know if I made it personally. Uh, Will is uh, in my co-founder is in charge of a, a lot of that, uh, but certainly we knew that as soon as we hired our first employee, uh, we wanted to present ourselves as a mature organization that took care of them, and it was important to us that we get healthcare right away and have a real payroll system. Even with the first employee. Wow. All right. For anyone out there who is now thinking, should I switch or should I not? I think the beginning of the year is a great time to make a switch so that everything starts off fresh, clean, and is all organized together. That's why I'm switching. 2022, I'm going to be on Gusto to pay. And by the way, they do full-time employees, but also contractors, and they make it easy for you to pay them and for them to know what they're getting paid and for them to access all the data they need. It's just beautifully done. And I could talk your ear off about it. But I think if you just experience it for yourself, you'll know if it fits for you or not. And so I'm going to let you use it for free right now. All you have to do is go to gusto.com slash Mixergy. That's G-U-S-T-O dot com slash M-I-X-E-R-G-Y. All right. I'm grateful to them for sponsoring. Um, how did you get your next customer? Um, well, once we got the first one, uh, we knew what to look for. We knew that the person experiencing this pain is the person that's trying to manage a bunch of R&D projects. It's a person who's wondering, why is R&D taking so long? Why can't I find that next great thing? Um, and so we started reaching out to companies with that message. And we started targeting companies that were sort of of the right size. Uh, for us, that meant um, you know, multiple billions in, in revenue, essentially, and making sure that we, we got to a point where uh, we could get that scale from these users and understand that this wasn't just one person's pet problem, but really an organizational issue uh, for the companies we would validate with. How, how did you find the right person at the right company? Finding the right company, I guess, is pretty easy, right? We're talking about big businesses that aren't hiding. How did you find the right person there? And how did you connect to them? Uh, well, you find a lot of the wrong people first, I think is the, is the right answer here. Is you you got to get in the door and, and talk with the wrong people before you find the right one. 
Um, and it's basically knowing that you might not be talking to the right person. How do I find the person who's both experiencing this problem and in a position where they could bring us in to help solve it? And as we've grown as a company, that person has been higher and higher up in the food chain of these organizations. And at this point, when we sell to an organization, we're typically talking about a multi-year rollout of the software across many different teams, which requires some sort of executive approval. Uh, but early on, um, it was usually an R&D director, uh, maybe even just a manager, and sometimes a vice president. And they would just take your call randomly? Or was it enough to say, I worked with this other business, I think you might benefit? Uh, well, we sent personal emails. So we never used like a mass outreach system. And it could be because of that. It could just be because our message was great. But we actually got a, a fairly good reply rate. Personal cold emails. emails. Yeah, a lot of personal cold emails. <laughs> wow. I'm guessing it's because they don't get a lot of spam and cold emails that are like that apply to them. I get a ton of them because people want to be on the podcast or they want to sponsor. I'm guessing that someone who's heading an R&D department doesn't get as much. Am I right? There definitely is not the software sales infrastructure in the R&D world that there are yeah. in a lot of places. If you're a marketing exec, you're probably getting a lot more software yeah. reach out than you are if you're an R&D exec. And I think that does make a huge difference. Um, uh, but certainly we, we saw it um, as a, a good option to just keep reaching out. And um, we also got a lot of our customers through word of mouth. Um, we've gotten connections from companies we work with. And it's been really great seeing how collaborative the R&D world is as soon as you get away from the direct competitors. Um, R&D is very secretive if you have two companies competing over a deal, um, but they really like to, to learn from each other um, when you're talking across industry. Will they be so competitive that they won't let you work with a competitor of theirs even though you're only providing software? Um, so our goal is to make them feel as comfortable as possible with the data. Um, and what we tell companies is, you know, we are data engineers, we're software engineers. Um, one of our first priorities is security and making sure that the data is isolated and secure. And we want you to know that your data is um, as safe with us as it is on your own servers. And uh, we do that through a lot of ways, including getting um, security audits. Even when we were working from our apartment, we actually got our first security audit um, and have had professional SOC 2, 2 auditors for many years now. Um, and that enables us to, to go and say, look, you know, we're gonna trust you with our da your data. We're not gonna share it. We're not gonna um, cross insights uh, within these industries and make sure that um, everything that's yours stays yours. This is a thing you've wanted to do for a long time. From what I understand as a kid, you loved programming, you loved trying different languages. In high school, you worked for a startup, what was it, bench press, bench prep? Yeah. What's that? Uh, well, Bench Prep was a, or is a, a test uh, preparation company that um, helps to essentially digitalize um, test prep books for things like the SAT or the MCAT, um, various different tests. And um, I, I learned, I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to learn from a lot of engineers um, and get a lot of exposure to different technologies and the way to make a product. And it can be really intimidating to think about, you know, making a company or making a full product. Uh, but I got experiences where, you know, I was building web servers um, and doing things basically from scratch, which allowed me to see that some of the things that seem scary are, are not so scary once you spend a little bit of time with it. Um, and then coming into school, uh, I spent a lot of time um, at places like Stardex, actually working with companies there, being a part of their team, um, which is kind of Stanford's startup accelerator and making sure that I got exposed to a lot of the different problems that startups were facing and founders face as they try to grow their companies. 
And what seems to have gotten you really fired up was you were watching around 2008, the iPhone allowed apps, apps were being made, being shipped, people were excited about software again, and you said, I want to be a part of that. Am I right? Yeah, I grew up in the Chicago area, um, and mm -hmm. I remember watching keynotes, not only from, from Apple, but also Google and other tech companies mm -hmm. um, back in you know 2008 era, and thinking I wanted to be in, in San Francisco, and I wanted to be part of that community. Um, and so when I got the, be lucky enough to go out to school out here, um, I, I never looked back and now still living in the city. I remember that. I, I remember the days when Steve Jobs would do his presentations. If I had an interview scheduled, 100% it was going to get canceled before the, uh, before the presentation because people wanted to be there for the presentation. I would have to though, and I also wanted to watch it remotely or, or, or read those live blogs. And I would have to schedule some kind of important phone call that I and the other person couldn't get out of just so I wouldn't waste my time just refreshing, refreshing, refreshing to see what he announced. seems like you had similar experiences. I think that there was a lot of excitement around what the web could enable um, and mm -hmm. generally other software and hardware that was coming out at that time um, that there really was a turning point for kind of interest and in, um, yeah, in Silicon Valley and the the types of companies you could make essentially on your own from home, um, and it no longer required a lot of startup capital to go and you know rent a server essentially and deploy a website. And seeing that and seeing the next generation of companies um, essentially start to be founded um, post two thousand eight uh, really made me excited about the the type of impact you could have as an engineer, um, and certainly. Uh, that was a big part of the reason why I'm still here today and came out here. This the, the time that you started, though, was 2016, and I feel like a lot of the excitement had gone away by then. Apps were already more mainstream, and people were starting to think, I don't want another app. Web 2.0 was kind of a dead experience. It was more like everything is now consolidating around a handful of companies, right? Were you feeling any of that? Um, I, I was not personally feeling it. It still felt exciting to me. Um, but, but I think the, there was a lot more institutionalization of a lot of the concepts for how to start yeah. a company. And, um, that I think benefited us more than anything, you know, from the start, our thesis here was we're going to bring certain types of technology to industries that just don't take advantage of it today. Mm -hmm. Um, so to the extent that maybe certain areas will, were well-trodden and starting a new app was harder and more saturated. Certainly enterprise software is not that way. Um, and from day one, we were, were trying to be an enterprise software company. And you're saying the clients that you were pursuing weren't in the cloud, for example, weren't super into new tech. That's the way you were experiencing it. Well, being in the cloud, certainly. Uh, there are certainly cases where we talked with a company in 2017 who said, no way, we're never adopting a cloud application. And today they come wow. to us and say, you know what we we trust you we're going to put our data with you in the cloud wow. and, um there have been complete 180s over a course of a couple of years and one of the things that doing um startup has taught me and really being engaged with uncountable for five years now has taught me is that um things do change and um you really have to take a long-term perspective and make sure that you're pushing your company in the direction of where the, the trends are headed and and certainly we made a bet that companies would adopt cloud software and that you would think that that bet would already be proven right five years ago, uh, but it's still something that's yeah. kind of consolidating today. 
And you were making these phone calls, this customer discovery calls from your dorm room at Stanford, trying to understand what was going on, what they needed. If it wasn't for this, if you hadn't landed on this business, what's another one that you might have jumped into? Um, well, we started to explore a lot of different areas. Um, we looked at kind of production planning for, for factories. Um, we worked with um, music festivals and it's kind of some of their data. Um, there was a lot of different things that we tried. And to us, you know, it was really about the impact that we could make. Uh, what got us excited about this R&D problem is that it really did seem like something where you could take data, formulate a decision or a recommendation, and actually have leverage on the business. And, and that wasn't true of some of the other application areas that we had looked at. Um, and that made a big difference to our and eventual decision to really go all in on this uh, company. You know what, Jason, I see that a lot of it is about data. You know that if you can make sense of data, if you can organize it and make it more accessible, that someone's going to benefit from it. I wonder if you would have thought about, say, all the health data that consumers are collecting right now, both from lab results that they're getting from doctors that don't make much sense to us, and the doctor just says you're healthy or you're not, and from the watches and the scales and everything else that's more and more connected, would that have been a business that you would have that you'd have considered making sense of, or did it need to be a business utility so that you can have real financial impact and then, you know, build a business that's bootstrapped? Well, I think more than a financial impact, we wanted to have an impact on the way the supply chains worked. You know, our mission as a company is to accelerate R&D by a factor of 10. And we want that product that's coming out in a year to come out in a month instead and really speed up the whole development process. Because what we see from companies is that they don't really make advances until the company higher up in the supply chain can feed them new materials, but then they want to be able to take advantage of that as quickly as possible. And we want to enable that. Um, in terms of working with kind of consumer health data, uh, there's certainly a lot of regulatory barriers um, and coordination barriers uh, that make it really hard uh, to build a company there. Or, or kind of take advantage of all that information. Um, you know, one principle in starting a company is to think about, well, when you become big enough, who, who are your competitors? And when you think about consumer health, um, certainly you start to come up with names like Apple and Google faster than when you um, are starting an enterprise R&D company. And so um, that, I think that's a big part of it as well, is that there are already companies that are really well suited to try to tackle that type of problem. All right, second sponsor, HostGator. I use them to host my website. If you need a website hosted, do what I did. Go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. You'll get a site that works. It's inexpensive, and it'll grow with you. They they do such a great job for me. Hostgator.com slash Mixergy. That URL will make their already low price even lower. All right, I'm grateful to them for sponsoring. Ari, our producer, asked you, tell us, tell her about the lowest point in your business. And this was surprising. It was hiring your first engineer. You're super smart. You're in an environment where there are a bunch of people who are smart people who are looking to handle challenging problems that are different, that want someone who's not a snake oil salesman or potentially one. You definitely aren't that, right? You're much more of an engineer like them than, than most companies here. What was the struggle? Yeah, so the struggle was with finding an engineer we were really excited about. Um, you know, we all three of us as founders have engineering backgrounds, um, and we want to add people to the team that we're excited about, um, that pass a very high technical bar, um, and then can also be future leaders. And we went and searched, and it took a very long time uh, to find a candidate that they're excited about bringing on. 
And during that whole process, it constantly felt like a battle not to try to lower our expectations and say, you know what, we can't find the person we're looking for. We're just going to lower our bar or we're going to give up on certain features of the person we're trying to find. And, and that was really, really challenging. And we had already hired some um, great data scientists. We had a uh, great salesperson. It, it was very challenging to go in and find the engineering hire. And I think part of it was I had never done it before. I had never um, hired someone and convinced them, look, you know, you're going to come in and, and make a product that is in just its very early stages today. And you're going to be a key part of that. Um, and for some of the, the early data science hires I made, I had been doing the role um, for a while and knew exactly on a day-to-day -day basis what they were going to be doing. I'd written like a handbook for them to, to come into. Um, and for engineering, you know, we wanted someone who could come in and really take ownership over a really big part of the product and didn't want to have to lower a bar. And so uh, it was a very long search before we found um, our first engineer, Will, um, who came in and has really been awesome for the team. And um, he's actually helped us to continue to grow the team and make sure that we never have to, to lower that bar. And since then, we've hired a lot of great engineers. And I can't say that it's a lot easier today, uh, but certainly my expectations have changed around what hiring engineers in Silicon Valley means and, and how to do it effectively. What have, you, what have you learned? And this is, by the way, Will Goldie. Yeah, Will Goldie was our first yeah. um, software engineering hire. Um, and we... We, we've learned that it's hard. I think at the end of the day, we've learned that um, engineers have a lot of great options and the hiring market is very inefficient. Um, there are a lot of engineers that don't explore all the options that are out there. And so just getting over the initial hump of getting in touch with them and having them consider your company is really, really challenging. Um, at one point, I, I talked with a bunch of um, really talented engineers and basically asked them, how did you find your current job? Uh, one of them told me that they, they switched jobs recently because they saw a billboard on the highway and were like, what company is this? <laughs> and they interviewed at one company, got the job, and, and took it. Um, and we're off the job market for the next two years. And, and certainly as a bootstrap company, we're not buying San Francisco billboards. Um, and so we needed to find other solutions and really hit hard um, a lot of different areas to, to try to, to find the best candidates. And one of those has been trying to recruit the, the best students coming out of college. Uh, when you're in mm -hmm. school, you you sort of naturally have this like two month period where you're looking for a job at some point, which is actually much longer than when you're in industry and only consider one or two companies. Um, but we, we also um, are trying to find more senior candidates through a lot of other sources as well. What's worked well for you um, from the other sources? I similar to how we found business, which is a lot of cold reach outs, a lot of trying to <laughs> reach out really? to engineers, tell us, tell them what we're doing, tell them about the opportunity we have in our engineering philosophy. Um, I think one of the things that's really important to us as a company is being very engineering focused. Um, we truly believe that the best product in the space is going to win out. And we think that our biggest advantage is finding awesome engineers that can come in and really transform the product. And so there's a big emphasis on uh, career growth and personal growth of engineers on giving engineers more responsibility that they, than they can handle right away. Um, even for someone coming right out of school, uh, but especially for someone who's been in industry for a while, um, and really allowing them to make a lot of um, creative and executive decisions. And, uh, with that, um, once we get engineers in the door, we can really show them why this might be a good fit for them. Uh, but it's the cold reach outs that at least get the first message going. What do you do to get them to pay attention to you when you're just reaching out to them with cold messages? 
Um, well, I think people don't really know about this industry. So the first thing is actually explain to them what we're doing and, and why. Um, and I think a lot of engineers uh, at one point were interested in science, um, whether they pursued that in school or just like remember their mm. high school chemistry class. Um, yeah. They're kind of excited about this problem area and it is a little bit different. Uh, we, our end users of this product are typically PhD scientists. Um, they're people that are really passionate about their data about the products they're working on. I've learned a ton of science across material science, chemistry, biology, um, just from trying to build a product for them. And I think it's a really interesting domain that kind of captures the attention of engineers once they get a message in their inbox. And how do you find the right people to pursue? Um, a, lot, a lot of LinkedIn. Um, is it? I, I think the, the key thing for us is finding people that um, either might be overlooked by other companies or may not have considered a career change for a while. Um, and kind of reaching out to them and saying, look, this opportunity is available. Here are the reasons why uh, it might make sense for you and um, seeing if we can get those initial conversations. Um, but it's hard. And, you know, I, I did not have good expectations going into to trying to hire engineers in such a competitive hiring environment. And we just opened an office in New York. So it gives us kind of access to both coasts. And there's certainly a lot of engineers right now who miss being in an office so we can offer that um but even in both new york and san francisco they're both very hard places to to find engineers all right the website is uncountable.com and are you now are you doing these interviews because you are thinking about raising money is that partially why you're going out or is it for hiring um, yeah, it's, it's not for raising, um, it's for kind of getting our name out there, uh, partially for hiring, partially for sort of an internal brand in Silicon Valley and the tech world. Um, most of our marketing materials end up in, you know, R and D magazines that engineers are not <laughs> reading. Um, and so we want to start to, to build more of a presence and, um, because we are bootstrapped, we don't have a VC network to, to leverage, to get easy intros uh, yeah. to, to media companies. And. It's one of those asymmetric advantages that don't matter to our customers, uh, but do matter to, to potential hires that we want to try to crack. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning, when I was trying to get guests to do interviews, I didn't have an audience to promise them, but I could say, you know, when someone's looking to work for you on their drive over, they're going to listen to this interview to get a sense of whether you're the right fit. When they hear from you, and they don't know who you are. They're going to Google you and they're going to come up with this and they're going to decide whether they like you enough to work with you or not. So uh, that was a big uh, conversion uh, point for me. All right. Well, Jason, thanks so much for being on here. No, thank you so much for having me. I definitely encourage people to uh, discover our website, Uncountable.com. We have a lot of materials about our hiring process, interviews, et cetera, uh, because we know that hiring can be very opaque from uh, the perspective of the candidate and try to make it more transparent and talk about what, what we do and why. Um, and and yep. certainly are excited to answer questions. So if anyone wants to email me, um, my email is jason at uncountable.com. Um, I try to personally respond to, to all engineers to reach out. So feel free to do that. All right. And thank you to the two sponsors, hostgator.com slash Mixergy and gusto.com slash Mixergy. Thanks. Bye, everyone.